This is a unique 4th of July weekend. This year, 2020, we celebrate 400 years uh, from the time that uh, the pilgrims landed on Plymouth Rock. In, in Plymouth, just about an hour and a half away south, right from uh, Boston. And it's a celebration that we would have loved to have in Plymouth, and there were all kinds of plans to uh, celebrate this 400th anniversary of the landing of the pilgrims uh, physically with a great fanfare and many uh, ceremonies and so on, but COVID has neutralized that. Nevertheless, I think it's important that we sort of consecrate that time in our hearts and acknowledge the miracle that uh, was wrought when these men and women, 102 of them I think it was, landed on Plymouth ground and began uh, an experiment, really, the, or a journey that has affected the entire world for the last 400 years in significant, even transformative ways. So 400 years ago, and to be precise, on November 11, 1620, these men and women landed on the shores of what today we call Plymouth, Massachusetts. And we need to remember that. And the Lord really convicted me this morning to preach um, unleashed, so to speak, and unbound the Word of God because these are such momentous times that we are living in that I think it's important to be provocative and, and, uh, and to speak from the heart and, and to challenge God's people and especially to use the Word of God as our foundation. I was led to the words of Jeremiah chapter 27, verse 21 to 23. And it says, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Go ahead, add your burnt offerings to your other sacrifices and eat the meat yourselves. For when I brought your ancestors out of Egypt and spoke to them... I did not just give them commands about burnt offerings and sacrifices, and this is the important piece, but I gave them this command. I gave them this command. Obey me, and I will be your God, and you will be my people. And this is God's word to America today, 4th of July weekend, 400th anniversary of the landing of the pilgrims. Obey me, and I will be your God, and you will be my people. Walk in obedience to all, all I command you, that it may go well with you. You know, that relatively small group of families and individuals, most of them devout Christians, came to this land in search of one thing specifically, religious freedom. They sought the liberty to worship God as their conscience guided them. In England, the land of their birth, they were not free to practice their faith the way that they felt the Bible compelled them to. So they left their native land and for a while lived in Holland before departing for the new world. 
That first community of religious immigrants considered themselves pilgrims. Actually, the first child born on land that was called peregrine. You've heard of peregrine falcons. Peregrine is a fancy word for pilgrim. They were alluding to their spiritual nature. A pilgrim is a person who travels far from their origins and, and often for religious or moral reasons, and especially traveling to a foreign country. Governor William Bradford, first governor of Plymouth Colony and historian of the colony's first decades, calls the Plymouth settlers pilgrims when he writes about their departure from Leiden, Holland to come to America. Before they left, he writes, they knew they were pilgrims and looked not much on material things, but lifted up their eyes to the heavens, their dearest country. Talk about treasure, where your treasure is. Their eyes to the heavens, their dearest country, and quieted their spirits. Governor Bradford also wrote a poem in which he refers to himself as a pilgrim. On this July 4th weekend, it is important for us to remember that the spiritual roots of this nation are thoroughly Christian. America's destiny and spiritual foundations were established, I would say irrevocably, by this band of consecrated believers. Prophetically, they saw their sacrificial journey to this new world as laying the foundation for, it, for an exemplary Christian culture that would delight the heart of God and provoke others to create similar societies based on biblical Christian principles. John Winthrop, another governor of, the, of Plymouth Colony later on, on his way to the New World in 1630, in his ship, preached his famous City on a Hill sermon to his fellow passengers and prophetically described this new society that they were seeking to found. And he said, the Lord will be our God and delight to dwell among us as his own people and will command a blessing upon us in all our ways so that we shall see much more of his wisdom, power, goodness, and truth than formerly we have been acquainted with. We shall find, he said, that the God of Israel is among us when ten of us shall be able to resist a thousand of our enemies, when he shall make us a praise and glory that men shall say of succeeding plantations, this is a Plymouth plantation, remember they called that, uh, of this society, this culture that we are founding, may the Lord make it like that of New England. For we must consider that we shall be as a city upon a hill. The eyes of all people are upon us. So that if we shall deal falsely with our God in this work we have undertaken, and so cause him to withdraw his present help from us, we shall be made a story and a byword through the world. We shall open the mouth of enemies to speak evil of the ways of God and all professors for God's sake. We shall shame the faces of many of God's worthy servants. This is if they neglected their God, no, if they abandoned this initial vision. We shall shame the faces of many of God's worthy servants and cause their prayers to be turned into curses upon us till we be consumed out of the good land whither we are going. Note the Israel 
model that kind of guides his words. Therefore, uh, Governor Bradford says, um, excuse me, um, John Winthrop, therefore, let us choose life. This theme of choosing life. Let us choose life that we and our seed may live by obeying his voice and cleaving to him. For he is our life and our prosperity. The people who opened up the womb of America were thoroughly consecrated believers. To them, material possessions or comfort were totally secondary. Compared, with the whole, compared to holiness, obedience to the scriptures, and service to Jesus Christ. These are the real values that animated their life as believers and that gave it meaning. 160 years later in the 18th century, close to the end of the 18th century, when the United States was formally founded after gaining independence from England, America's religious, religious faith had become more complicated and sophisticated. But it is clear to any fair observer that the founding fathers of this nation were God-fearing men and women, deeply respectful of the Christian scriptures. Their sensibility as well as their worldview was profoundly shaped by the Bible. And if anyone would have asked them what faith they professed, almost unanimously, I would bet they would have identified themselves as Christians. Without a doubt, their moral and spiritual values would have closely reflected the values of the Christian faith and the Christian scriptures. And it is important to emphasize this on a day like this, since it has become fashionable these days to deny that America was founded on Christian principles. This is generally done in order to confuse and complicate, to use a fancy word, to obfuscate, to weaken the undeniable fact of America's Christian origins, and to put into question the preeminence that Christianity and Christian values should have, even today, in shaping the moral and spiritual fabric of our nation. Whatever views one holds on these matters, it is undeniable that the very roots of this nation are eminently Christian. The first two centuries of America's history were characterized by a general devotion to the Word of God and the principles of the Christian faith. This nation was irrevocably bound to its Christian destiny by the devotion, the prayers, and the covenants of its founders and many succeeding generations. Since its founding, America has, been, has seen countless revivals that have renewed its Christian energies. All through the 18th, 19th, and 20th centuries, God has sent revivals to this nation that have periodically refreshed its Christian spiritual identity. We must remember that the 20th century began with the great Pentecostal revival of 1901, headed by an African-American man, William Seymour. Until the 1950s, 
the overwhelming majority of Christians, oh, excuse me, of Americans, considered themselves Bible-believing Christians. In certain aspects of its civil life, as was the case with the deplorable treatment of African Americans, this nation may have and it has deviated from the Christian principles that it has professed. But in general, it has depended on the values of Christianity as an important point of reference for its national life and its form of government and has honored God and Jesus Christ in its monuments and official documents. It must also be remembered that God has dealt severely with this nation when it has deviated from its Christian principles. Like Israel, God has not left America without discipline. The terrible tragedy of the American Civil War in the 19th century is one example of how God has severely disciplined this land that he clearly loves and therefore chastises when it strays from his commandments. America is now fighting for its life like never before. This time, its enemies come from within rather than from outside. America's greatest enemy at this time is not China or Russia, but rather itself. America is presently fighting for its very soul, for its spiritual identity. It debates itself between two radically different spiritual options. It is a profoundly divided nation. It is weak inside and crumbling at its very foundations. America's tragic state of division did not start with Donald Trump, it must be clarified. He is merely an expression and a result of that pre-existing division. Donald Trump emerges as an incarnation of the powerful forces that are tearing this nation apart. He happens to be president right now because 47% of American voters in key states voted for him. Compared to Hillary Clinton's 48% of the vote. These close numbers show just how closely divided this nation was even before the 2016 election. In the three plus years since the last election, America has only grown more deeply divided. Its two opposing sides have become more entrenched and more bitterly opposed to each other. At this point, it would seem that reconciliation is no longer a possibility. The choices are too stark. The stakes are too high. The moral values that each side represents and holds dear would seem to be mutually exclusive and irreconcilable. America wavers presently between a radically secular, humanistic understanding of the world and another that is closer to the worldview of its spiritual forefathers. I will leave it to each of us to determine which of these two destinies we want for our nation, and which of these two worldviews we want to become dominant. I will 
evade, I will not fall into the trap of trying to name or define these two sets of values too specifically. However, I will challenge each of you who hear this sermon to make an honest, detailed list of the moral, civil, and spiritual values held by these two worldviews. And to ask yourselves, honestly, which of the two most closely adheres, sticks close to the values of the scriptures and of the historical Christian faith that those first pilgrims embraced back in 1620. Because in the end, one of these two views, one of these two world outlooks will determine the nature of this country. Let us not uh, disguise that fact. There will be a a foundational, fundamental outlook that will guide all the specific decisions that will be made by our governments, by our institutions, that will affect deeply the spiritual nature of this nation and our own lives as Christians. In the end, America's destiny and prosperity will not be determined by choices related to economics or superficial politics, but rather by what spiritual decisions it makes, by whether it embraces the kingdom of light or the kingdom of darkness. What will determine the country that we end up living in in the next 10 or 20 years will depend on such issues as whether the church in America ends up respected or whether it is persecuted and obstructed by its own civil government. Whether laws that offend the heart of God continue to be supported and established by our political leaders and government institutions. Whether babies continue to be massacred by the millions facilitated by our government's enthusiastic protection and funding of abortion. Whether God's design for marriage and sexuality is respected or trampled upon by laws established by our president, Congress, and Supreme Court. Whether the leaders of our nation hold to a sincere, closely held Christian faith. Or whether, at best, they subscribe to an eviscerated secular Christianity, completely emptied of its moral and biblical content and spirit. It is decisions such as these that will determine the kind of nation that America will become in the coming years. America's present drama is nothing less than a titanic struggle between the forces of light and the forces of darkness. It is safe to say that as this country goes, so will the world. America's power and influence in the world is such that it represents an extraordinary prize for Satan's efforts to gain complete, unchallenged control of the world. Now, despite its many imperfections, America, I believe, is still the greatest nation on earth. It got there by being a radically imperfect nation that, it's, despite its many flaws, still held up the ideals 
of being a society based on Judeo-Christian values. As in the case of King David, a man may commit many sins and have many flaws, but if his heart is on, in the right place and loves God, much will be forgiven because he loves much. In that same way, a nation like America may be quite imperfect and commit many sins throughout its history. But if it persists in showing an essential love for God, and if it publicly and sincerely honors Him and His commandments, God will be merciful and find ways to restore it when it strays. America has never been perfect. It has committed grave sins and injustices throughout its history. But so has every other nation that has ever existed. And many times the sins of those great nations have been just as great or greater than those that America has committed. Today, on this weekend of 4th of July, when I think of America... I think of a land that everybody seems to be fighting to get into and not out of. I think of a nation of opportunity where people like me arrive from a foreign country and despite a childhood of poverty are somehow allowed and enabled to study for free in the best schools and universities that the nation has to offer and to ultimately prosper solely because of their abilities and giftedness. I see a society that has always protected the poor and the handicapped. A nation that dedicates more money to philanthropic causes than probably the rest of the world combined. And this, by the way, is ultimately linked to its strong Christian origins and ethos. If you trace the origins of uh, service to the poor, to the weak, and all the, the extraordinary noble values that guide this nation, you will find probably a Christian origin. I observe a country where people of all faiths are still allowed to practice their religion free of oppression or persecution. I see a land that for the most part, as on this 4th of July, still honors its history, and its national heroes. Instead of avidly seeking to cut them down to size and exhibit their flaws and their sins, as is becoming more and more the habit in this present climate. By the way, when a society becomes cynical and pharisaic and seems to take delight in cynically tearing down every national myth and every national hero, it will inevitably lose its vitality and its capacity to be inspired. It will lose its courage and vigor and become easy prey for its enemies. Every hero has his Achilles tendon. Every hero has feet of clay. And if you dig deep enough in the life of any national figure in human history, not only in America, you will always find the sins and the mistakes, the shameful statements and the shameful actions. 
if we go out on witch hunts of all our national heroes, pretty soon we will be left with nothing more than the sterile spectacle of a land without statues, thoroughly stripped of inspiring role models. America may not be perfect, but until recently, I would say, it has been essentially kind and God-fearing. It has been spiritually humble with an essential respect for the Creator. It, it has been laced with a keen sense of the sacred and steered by a basic belief that we live in a world that has been created by a benevolent, holy God. For the most part, it has relied on, on, on the belief that there's a heaven and a hell. That there's a powerful spiritual being called Satan who is out to kill, steal, and destroy. And that the best way to protect ourselves from his awesome, evil strength is to take refuge in the power of Christ, his commandments, and his word. This is basic faith. What we see now at work in America is forces that are trying to radically separate this nation from its historical and spiritual roots. To tear America from its only source of spiritual protection. And I don't say that this is, by the way, evidently clear and black or white without nuances. I'm saying that when you look at the very basics and you strip uh, the foliage from the tree, you will see a trunk and a set of roots that uh, denounce the, the true spiritual foundations of what animates this present move that seems to want to take over America. What we see is this, this force trying to separate this nation from its spiritual and historical roots to tear America from its only source of spiritual protection, to pry it away from its biblical foundations and its slim loyalty to God, and to turn it into an utterly secular nation depending solely on its own intellect and technological prowess. This is precisely where Satan wants America in order to be free to demonize it completely and turn it into a formidable source for evil in the world. And by the way, America is slowly becoming that already. It exports all kinds of corruption to the rest of the world. And this is why the Muslim world detests this nation and many other countries that hold to some sort of uh, Christian worldview um, see America as a purveyor of corruption and corrupt lifestyles and corrupt moral models. We have begun that journey already. No Christian who holds to an orthodox biblical faith should be found cooperating with this secular, demonic spirit. My people, I'll say that again to myself, first of all. And this is why I'm, I'm sort of uh, being so blunt in this sermon. Because I, I cannot continue repressing and alerting people to the truth, the, the, the true nature of what we are living and navigating in our time. No Christian who holds 
to an orthodox biblical faith should be found cooperating with this essentially secular demonic spirit. It doesn't matter whether it clothes itself in the garments of social justice, redistribution of wealth, or equality for all, important as those values are and should be. We should, as the Bible says, discern the spirits and hone in to the essential nature of this force that is seeking to lay hold of our nation. We should denounce it for what it is. One more pitiful attempt of the enemy to present himself in sheep's clothing in order to be allowed in and invited to take total control of this nation. By the way, this is important. I am, I am not in any way saying that the alternative is perfect or that it isn't also penetrated by grave sinfulness and imperfection. I could spend another sermon just pointing that out. I am no passionate, uh, how should I say, uh, blind um, advocate of the alternative. And what, much of what we see in Washington today, I think it bears huge amounts of uh, criticism from a biblical perspective. And, Amer and, and American Christianity should not be found tying its destiny and its image and its message to any one particular party, individual, or social or political movement. They will all uh, disappoint us. They will all be penetrated by essential sinfulness. And we must navigate those waters of advocacy very carefully, very subtly, very dispassionately, very objectively, very much from a biblical perspective. But neither one of the alternatives before us is flawless or free of danger. They both have their complications. They both have their flashing red lights. But unfortunately, ultimately, we have only two alternatives to choose from. And we must opt for the one I put it this way, for the one that is least spiritually harmful, the one that according to principles of spiritual warfare and biblical worldview, most effectively closes the door to the demonic powers that pretend to take over this nation and holds the door open for the power of God to come in and restore and correct the defects of our national life. Let me say that one of the things that I expect from a government in America is that at the very least, it will not obstruct the work of the church. At the very least, it will allow the church to be the church. I don't expect the President of the United States or the Congress of the United States to, to somehow you know, become a, a, a rabid defender of the church. All I ask is that they leave the church alone to do its work. That they not put artificial obstacles in the way of the church. That they not try to impose their, I would say, their secular agenda. And governments sometimes, you know, need to be secular. On the modus operandi, the way the church operates. That's all I ask. That's all we ask that American Christianity be allowed space to 
to operate according to its nature and its calling. That obstacles not be put in the way of the church to do what God has called it to do in society. People of God, we don't have the luxury of engaging in subtle word play or intellectual sophistry in our time. The salvation of millions of souls, including that of our children and grandchildren, is at stake. Major shakings of the foundations of the world are already taking place in our time. And each believer must be found on the side of truth and light. These are urgent times. These are times unlike any other that any generation of believers has actually lived in. Everything is becoming more clear, more defined. The choices are narrowing. And what is in front of us is clearly more than ever discernible. The salvation of millions of souls, including that of our children and grandchildren, is at stake. The words of the Apostle Paul in Romans 13 are more applicable now than ever. He says in Romans 13, verse 11, The hour has already come for you to wake up from your slumber. Because our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. I think we can all agree on that. Our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. The night is nearly over. The day is almost here. So let us put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. The hour is far advanced Normalcy and complacency are no longer options for Christian believers. It is time for Christians in America to lose their baby fat, to stop playing games, and to decide whether they will be found fighting on the side of light or on the side of darkness. That's all it comes down to. Material considerations and issues of comfort must take a back seat. Concerns about being popular or approved must no longer matter to us, just as it didn't matter to the pilgrims 400 years ago. Let us not delude. Let us not fool ourselves. The world will never ultimately approve of Christians or their faith, no matter how many contortions we put ourselves through or how hard we try to dial down the sharpness of the gospel in order not to offend. In the end... The world will hate us just as it hated Jesus, simply because his words brought into question its evil ways. The stakes become higher by the day, and Christians who refuse to take a clear stand will open themselves more and more to spiritual deception and run the risk of losing their very souls. This is what the Apostle Paul implies in 2 Thessalonians 2, 9 through 11. With respect to the spirit of deceit, of deceit and antichrist that will be set loose in the earth in the end times. He says, Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians 2, 9 through 11. The coming of the lawless one 
will be in accordance with how Satan works. In accordance how Satan works. This is what we see in our time. Methodologies and, and uh, processes that uh, reflect the way Satan works. He will use all sorts of displays of power through signs and wonders that serve the lie. And all the ways that wickedness deceives that those uh, deceives those who are perishing. They perish because they refused to love the truth and so be saved. The people of God, we need to be consumed by a, a passionate love of the truth, even at the cost of our lives. Truth should so become a part of our very structure that we cannot live without navigating it, without expressing it in everything that we do and say. They perish because they refused to love the truth and so be saved. And this is important. Pay attention to this. For this reason, God sends them. God sends them. God sends them. I mean, this is a deliberate action on the part of God, as scandalous as it may seem. God sends them a powerful delusion, a lie, so that they will believe the lie, and so that all will be condemned who have not believed the truth, but have delighted in wickedness. Truth becomes um, a vaccine against the virus of demonic infiltration and uh, delusion. Truth becomes our protective, guiding spirit. Truth and devotion to it. Unconditional, objective devotion becomes the, the, the shield, the, the defender of every person who happens to live within this and whatever other generation is left before Jesus Christ comes for the second time. The only way to protect ourselves from the great delusion that will affect so many believers in the end times is through radical obedience to the Word of God. Total, unquestioning submission to its teachings. A resolution not to trust our own reasonings and our own moral concoctions and, and um, calculations. But to just ask, what does the word say? And to slavishly and obediently abide by it. We must rely completely on the dictates of God's word. As desperately as people in a dark cave would depend on the light that will help them to get out into the light of day. We want to be as desperate and as consecrated as those first pilgrims back in 1620 who left familiarity and personal comfort in order to radically pursue their faith. Again, the words of the Apostle Paul in 2 Peter 1.19. Peter 1.19. They're very relevant in this respect. Peter says, we also have the prophetic message as something completely Reliable. Notice the, 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 the absolute nature of this word that we have been given. It's not there to be, you know, parsed 
and adjusted to new realities as the intellect discerns them in the 21st century. These words, this prophetic message is something completely reliable. And you will do well to pay attention to it as to a light shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Without a doubt, on this 4th of July weekend, America is in a very dark place indeed. This eternal prophetic message that the Word of God provides is the only hope on the horizon for this nation. I pray that this church, Congregation Lion of Judah, and Christians all over this nation will commit ourselves today more than ever to upholding and living out this precious faith of our spiritual forefathers. Let us pray. And I would ask that if these words uh, touch your heart somehow or even convict it, if you can accept its content and the sincerity that is behind it and the pastoral heart that guides them, th that you would... Um, you would examine yourselves, just as I am examining myself, just as I examined myself as I put together this sermon last night and this morning, that you, you would examine yourselves, that we would all examine ourselves. Where am I? Am I, is my commitment to the Word of God and to the principles of God's kingdom up to the seriousness of the moment that I am living in? Do I see my life with the urgency that these times demand? Or do I seek to live my life, you know, normally and um, without too much intensity, without confronting, without denouncing my Christian identity, without standing clearly on what I know? to be true, without polishing the Word of God in my heart, can I not remove the dust that inevitably settles upon the Word of God by sheer usage and exposure to the elements? Do I need to renew and revive my understanding of my Christian identity in the light of the times that I am living in? As we look around ourselves, we, we see a world that is in flames. Uh, we see the movie actually playing out itself in our own lives, and we have entered into the movie. And now we are characters in something extraordinarily dramatic, but it's so rare and so strange that we don't realize it, that the movie has become real that the story has become the, the life that I am living, that the themes are no longer theoretical, but that they are in three dimensions, and that they point to me, they ask me, what will you choose? 
How are you going to live your life? Where are you going to put your treasure? What are you going to consider primordial in your life? We have to ask ourselves those questions. I tell you that this is the only protection against the deceit that will come upon the world that is rapidly covering humanity. Our only protection will be refuge in the Word of God. And we will triumph only when we have given up our life and despised it for the sake of winning the kingdom. So I asked us this morning on this unique weekend to revisit our Christian identity and to ask God for forgiveness. I ask the Lord for forgiveness myself. I, even though I preach the gospel and I pastor a congregation and I participate in all kinds of Christian events and things, I, I know that I'm not living up to the seriousness of this moment that has come upon me. And I, I still am just overtaken by the weirdness of it, by the fact that what I have expected is here and that it is no longer a theory or some sort of, um, you know, uh, conjecture, prophetic conjecture. No, this is real and we are living it and it will become more real, it will become sharper, more defined. And that we need to shake ourselves, we need to stare ourselves into action and into disposition. I ask us to do that right now. Invite the Holy Spirit, invite the Holy Spirit to wake us up. Invite the Holy Spirit to put desperation in our hearts. I do that right now. Father, in Jesus' name, wake up your people. Wake up this congregation. Wake us up from our slumber, Father. We beg your forgiveness, Lord. We have offended you by our mediocrity. We have offended you by our indifference. We have offended you by our complacency. We have not taken seriously enough the very things that we have declared. And we ask you to wake us up. We ask you to make us profoundly uncomfortable and even desperate. Father, sharpen our swords, sharpen our hearts, sharpen our sensibility. Oh, Lord, visit your people again. Visit us with your spirit. Father, awaken the gifts of your spirit, Lord. Awaken the, the desperation for holiness and, and adherence to your word. Awaken our, our despising of uh, anything that is human or carnal or, or material. And put in us such a desire to please you that uh, no other love will be able to occupy our hearts. Awaken your people, not only here, not only in the congregation line of Judah, whether through the internet or physically here, but through the church of Jesus Christ in our region, in New England, where so many of these miraculous events took place 400 years ago, and in Washington and all over this nation. Father, send your spirit upon the earth again. Revive your work in the midst of the times, Lord. Revive your spirit in the midst of history and awaken our sensibility to what you are doing and sharpen our discernment, Father. Awaken the spirits of the prophets and the apostles all over this nation, all over the world. Father, send voices that will awaken, that will denounce, that will confront, that will encourage, 
that will announce your truth unambiguously, sharply, and clearly, Father, with power from the Holy Spirit. Lord, we cannot do it ourselves, and we cannot do it just with words. We need something stronger. We need an essence that can only come from you. And we ask you to make it so, Father, we are willing to be instruments in your hands. But we cannot concoct this posture ourselves. We, we, we cannot speak with merely human words, Father. We require an essence that can only come from you and from your throne of power. Lord, you told your disciples you shall receive power. And then, only then, you shall be my disciples. We are lacking that power right now, Father. We admit it. And we will not try to disguise the fact that we are desperately in need of an anointing that only you can provide. And Father, we say, let it be done. Let it be so, Lord. Send your spirit these times and awaken your spirit in the middle of the earth, Father, and send your spirit upon the earth. Awaken us from our complacency. Begin with me. We worship you and we crave and we seek to see your figure move within history, Father. We want that more than anything else today. We pray these things in the powerful, faithful name, the unchanging name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And the people of God say, Amen and Amen. God bless you.